So all the bread available in the city had run out. The remaining water that could be drawn from stagnant pools was full of filth. The famine was so severe that people's skin had shrunk and was turned black and had stretched over their bony bodies. Even the richest and the noblest searched the dunghills for scraps of animal remains to eat. The parents left let their children starve. And then a third part of the city died. And their bodies lined the streets so much that the stench was unbearable. People were afraid to leave their homes to even search for food. The plague which grew out of the decay was affecting everyone. Throughout the history of warfare, it is sometimes proven necessary though gruesome, and less costly to lay siege to a city rather than assault it directly. Sieges often result in more civilian deaths than military casualties. This situation, a common practice in ancient time, really didn't resurface until the bombing raids of World War II where there were more civilian casualties than military. Jerusalem was invaded. The most profitable citizens had been captured, carried away, deported, exiled 500 miles away across the Sinai Peninsula to the Persian Gulf, the capital of Babylon. The temple was destroyed. The city was now burned. There was nothing left of God's eternal city. So how on earth, how on earth did we get in the drama of redemption to hear. What about the promises that we've been studying, right, the whole time of God's promises of faithfulness to Israel to, to keep someone from the line of David, the King David, on the throne of Israel forever? How about the land being an eternal inheritance that God would graciously give his people? All gone. Well, this is the scene in Jerusalem, 280 years after the prophet Elijah that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at his confrontation with King Ahab on Mount Carmel. However, the, the result was not what Elijah had hoped for. He had been looking forward to God showing himself strong, showing himself, revealing himself by fire and consuming the sacrifice by fire from heaven and then slaughtering the 450 prophets of Baal. He had assumed that that would lead to a nationwide revival and a whole government restructuring of its worship. None of that happened. Elijah ran for his life. There was no repentance, more idolatry, and more bad kings. So God continues, though, to send prophets to warn them, he, especially to the north where that story happened. And we see that idolatry and worshiping of other gods besides the one true God have been most prevalent in the northern kingdom. They get deported by Assyria. And it's about 150 years later that the scene we have now happens in the southern half of the nation in Jerusalem. But during that time, God was being patient and he sent prophets to warn, to call to repentance to say, God is coming in judgment, please repent. But they weren't willing. And today we will look at the nation of Israel, God's people, through the last prophet that God sends, Jeremiah. And with Jeremiah, we have the darkest period of Israel's corruption. If, there was, if we were looking on a graph at the drama of redemption, this would be the lowest point on the graph in the Old Testament. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 2, and I'm going to read um, some portions from this chapter, um, and then we're going to look at some metaphors that God uses to, through the prophet Jeremiah to explain to us what on earth has happened. Ch chapter 2, verse 2, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is Jeremiah speaking, now God speaking, 
Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, talking about Israel, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate of it incurred guilt, and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. What went, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not even know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied actually by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I shall contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus or send to Kedar and examine with care to see if, any, if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 19, your evil shall chastise you, and your apostasy will, apostasy will approve you, will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter, for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord. For long ago, I broke your yoke and I burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. Like a restless young camel running here and there. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed they, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, all who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Yet, in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me Behold, I, I am bringing you into judgment for saying I have not sinned. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to walk through some of the metaphors now that Jeremiah uses, that God uses through the prophet Jeremiah to explain to his people and to us why God has acted in such a decisive way in judgment against his people. There's three things we're going to look at. One is the scandal. The scandal, why, has, why is it so bad? Why does Israel's actions actually deserve how God has responded? What is the source of their adultery or idolatry? What's the source of their idolatry? We're going to do an autopsy on the nation of Israel. What has gone wrong? And then we're going to look at the consequences of their idolatry. How God disciplines them, and then how God gets justice. So scandal, we have the source, we have consequences. Look at verse 2 again. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, 
in a land not sown. See, the scandal here of Israel's departure from God is so severe that he uses the picture here of a beloved bride turning into a woman of the streets. Scandalous adultery. Adultery is the metaphor for their worship, for their false worship. I don't know if you think about your relationship with God the same way that a husband would think about his relationship with his wife. I don't know if marriage comes to your mind when you think about your relationship to God. But here, the first thing we see is that it is in no way a casual thing. Though many people and all of us, in some measure, treat God very casually. But what we see here is that God is calling them, He's reminding them who they really are to Him and who, and who, they, who He really is to them. They're not casual acquaintances, but they're like husband and wife. Now you may not, also you may not believe in God this morning, and you're, and you're, here, you're here still searching for all of these things, and, and you have doubts, you have questions, and welcome, please, thank you so much for coming. So even if you do not understand what it means for God to be a husband to you, still picture this, that on the basis of creation alone, on the basis of the world alone, on the basis of our very existence, the size of the universe, the beauty of our bodies, and the intricate nature of the atoms that, hold, that we consist of, God is worth paying attention to. He deserves our attention. Our, he is so large and so big and so wonderful, just based on what is revealed in this very room that life should not be lived casually before him, but we should actually live our lives in light of who he is. And if that is true, how much more should his people that he delivered from Egypt after 400 years of slavery, releasing them from the wicked hand of Pharaoh and delivering them graciously, compassionately into a land of their own, how much more should they not live every moment of their lives have every thought, have every action be in reference to this great and wonderful God. That is what God is reminding them of. That He is not just some casual deity to be worshipped. He is actually their husband. I don't know if we think about it like that, but God is reminding us. He's also talking about the passion of newlyweds. This, the, the picture here is almost like God is going back through the wedding album of the wedding, the pictures at the reception, the wonderful things that happen in those first few years of their marriage. He's looking back. He's grieving over what has become. See, we use such polite language, don't we, for this? We say, you know, I'm really struggling to be as excited about God as blank. I'm really struggling to, be, or I'm really struggling because I'm I'm more excited about this than God. I don't know what you would put in the blank this morning. You're more excited about your job or your house or your motorcycle or VCU basketball or whatever it is that is attracting you, and you say, you know, I'm just really struggling with enjoying God as much as blank. Well, guys, listen to this language. It's not just a struggle. It's adultery. If that doesn't hit home, maybe think about it this way. Think, think about a, if, if you're married here and you are a wife, think about you saying out loud, I really enjoy being more with him than I do my husband. Or husbands, maybe this is how it works for you. I'm really enjoying being with this woman rather than my wife. Maybe that helps us get the sense of it now. This isn't just a casual struggle. God is calling his people to account and he's saying, you have not just been struggling, you have actually committed adultery against me. Therefore, verse 9 says, I will contend with you. Contend. The word here, he's taken them to court. He's actually taken them to divorce court. God has begun divorce proceedings with his people. He has been, through this whole chapter, he lines up his defense about 
how faithful he has been to them and how unfaithful Israel has been. Let's look at some more of these metaphors. The other metaphor is a child that has disowned his parents. Look at verse 26. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, officials, priests, and prophets, who say to a tree, say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. See, they would worship false gods called Baals through physical images, physical representations of trees and stones and statues. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, look at, just think about the picture of looking to a tree and saying, you gave me birth, some inanimate object. Or looking to a statue and saying, you are my father. What's happening here? Why is this, why is this crazy symbol being used? Well, see, they weren't just switching their worship from one God to another. It wasn't as simple as a, as a decision that they would make on a daily basis. What, what is happening here is that they're using core identity language. See, the Baals, the Baals that they were worshiping, the false gods, they were, actually, they were actually worshiping money. They were actually worshiping power. They were absolutely worshiping sex in order to get what they wanted. See, they thought that they were just pursuing these things, but no, they were actually bowing down to these things and worshiping them. And what this is saying is that it wasn't the money, it wasn't the pleasure, it wasn't the power that you were looking for. You were looking for an identity. You were looking for meaning for your life. See, these things, these inanimate objects, these things that, cause, that have so much attraction for us, Yes, they are so simple and so innocent by themselves, but what happens here is when we take a good thing and make it a main thing, it becomes a very bad thing because we have switched looking to God for our very identity and meaning, and we've switched it to something else. Think of how base this language, I have, you are my father, you give me identity, you are my origin. What God is saying here is that that's essentially what's happening when we enjoy other things over and against God himself. We are looking for meaning in those things. And we, and we want to unite with them. We get proud of those things. I mean, think about the things in your life that when you're meeting someone for the first time, you want them to know about you. I mean, this is like, you know, the top 10 list of things that you've, that have, that you've experienced that are wonderful in your life. The top 10 things that you've done. You want to help other people put you on their map. And you want to, you want to help them. So what do you say? What? What is this thing? What are the things that you want people to know about you? Well, I went to the senior prom as a junior. High school is rough for me. That's like my high point, right? I, I justify all kinds of stuff through that, right? I went to the University of Richmond. I played soccer. I lived in Israel for a year and a half. I worked for an advertising agency. I used to have long, curly brown hair down to my shoulders. I want you to know that about me. I've got pictures to prove it. Um, Why do we do that? Why do we do that? We're not just sharing information. We're not just letting people know who we are. We are attaching meaning and identity to these things that we're proud of. That's why we wear jerseys of our favorite team. Because we're proud of them and we want to be identified with them. We actually, I mean, we want to be inside of them. We want people to transfer the good things that they feel about that team to us. Am I, you, you'll do this? I do this. I mean, or your car. I mean, you want all the good feelings and the great things that people think about that new car. The reason, the reason why you like being in it is that they will transfer those feelings to you. And that goodness and the great thing that that car is will be transferred to you somehow. That, that's, the, that's what he's saying here. We're looking for meaning and identity in the things that we love and the things we talk about. So that's what, that's the, some of the metaphors for this idolatry. Now let's look at some of the sources that he points out. Look at verse 12. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, 
and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns that cannot hold water. The, 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 the picture here is, is really clear. Think about being in an arid part of the world and Jerusalem being literally surrounded by desert. Um, water's really important. And there are really only three ways to, to use it and enjoy it. Right? One was actually living next to a river right? or a spring. That's what living water means. This means the water's moving. Right? Or you would redirect a river into a pool that could be accessed by a city or by cattle or something like that. Or thirdly, you would collect rainwater. Right? What would happen is that during the rainy seasons, rainwater would run into these big caverns that people had dug in the ground. They were huge. Um, and then they would line the inside with plaster so that during the rainy season, it would fill up with water. And then during the dry season, when it doesn't rain in Israel for six months, then they would have water. Here's the picture. One of the most disappointing things that could ever happen, one of the most devastating things that could happen, is for you to think you've been collecting rainwater the entire rainy season, and then to go to that cistern and realize there's a crack in the plaster in the bottom, and all the water will have run out. Devastating. That's what he's saying. Be devastated. What have you done, Israel? What have you done? You have forsaken a river for a cistern that can't even hold rainwater. It's preposterous. It's shocking. It shouldn't be that way. See, this is just a note. He's saying that these idols that you thought would hold so much water for you have deceived you. And also look at the progression. They do not just immediately go after these cisterns, metaphorically speaking. Um, They don't just start, hey, I really want to give my whole life and put all my hopes in a cistern that can't hold water. No, it starts with forsaking, what it says here, the fountain of living water, God himself. So something happened. Something got in the way. Something stopped them from realizing or enjoying or appreciating the benefit that God was to them. They were... They might have known God, but they stopped drinking from him. And that's how they would ever go after a cistern that was broken. Do you see that? Something got in the way. And, and, we, and we see that even more in verse 5 where it says, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? See, they, somehow God had stopped being enough for them. Somehow along the way they had gotten tired. They had gotten tired of who God was, or of how he was providing, or how good he was. So much so that he was like, what wrong? This isn't about me failing you. I have never failed you. If there's distance between me and you, I have not moved. You have moved on. And the implication here is that they had, they had found something wrong with God. That for some reason, they didn't feel like he was living up to what they deserved or what they wanted. We've seen this before in the story. Remember with Adam and Eve. God had given them every green tree, given them everything they'd ever wanted, could ever ever possibly want in the beautiful Garden of Eden. It was perfect before sin. And yet, they believe a lie about God. They find something wrong with Him. And that's that's the only reason why they were tempted to go find knowledge of good and evil and live independent lives. That's the only reason, because they started doubting who God was. That, what Jeremiah is telling us is that God, Israel, that's where it began. Second part of verse 5 says, and then they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Wow. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. This is the same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes for vanity, for breath, for nothingness. What he's saying is that if you go after things that are not God, you will become empty. He's just, you went after worthlessness and became like what you worshipped. I've, I've felt this tangibly recently. Um, as wonderful as Christmas is and the holiday season is and how much fun it is, this past season for our family was probably one of the busiest, craziest ever. You could have made a movie out of our month before Christmas, right? It was just insane the amount of things that we did and tried to do. Um, (laughs) Lots of people over, lots of travel. 
Um, lots of getting the house ready for so many guests and things like that. It was wonderful, right? But afterwards, I just remember the sinking feeling as I was washing up dishes a- after New Year's one day. And I just had this empty, I felt so empty. I just felt this despair. It was just like this tangible, like, ugh. Great, now I've got to pay my visa bills, right? And all that stuff that comes, right? No, but it wasn't the visa bills. It was just this sense of emptiness. It's like, what, what was happening? Well, I, I thought about it, and I said, wow, I had just gotten so wrapped up. I'd gotten putting all my hopes and all my energy and all of my, you know, enjoyment just became in all these little things. And I really just kind of lost my connection with, with God there for a little while. Now, you would say, well, Chris, what's, what's wrong with Christmas, right? Can, we, can you just get off Christmas for a little bit, right? No, there's nothing wrong with Christmas. There's nothing wrong with the season. There's nothing wrong with family and friends and kids and, and going to Bush Gardens and all the crazy stuff that we did. There's nothing wrong with that. How can you say it's worthless? And I agree with you. Those things are in, in no way worthless by themselves. But they are worthless as God's. Those things are worthless as a God replacement. See, your kids make an awful God. All right, not so many parents in here this morning. Okay, your best friends in college make an awful God. Your basketball team makes an awful God. Your job makes an awful God. They will fail you. They are short-lived. Think about your kids. If you think so much and they pour your life into them and you want so much back from them and all your identity is in them, but then they turn on you. Now, this is not just my kids. This will be your kids as well. They will turn on you at some point. If they haven't, young parents, they will. That cute little baby that's in the crib will turn on you. And one day, they will say they hate you and they will slam a door and they will stomp their feet. Okay? They make awful gods. We put so much energy and so much life into them, but yet they will disappoint us. Or your job or your career or your house. I just finished a home renovation a year and a half ago, and I mean, spent so much money, so much time, so much effort, and I already want to do more stuff. Not a good God. Not a good one. So what's really happening here? What is God letting happen, and what is God doing? A big consequence is that Israel just became worthless. But remember the scene at the start? The Babylonians have come. They've carried off the king, and everyone who tucks their shirt in, wears a belt, and pays taxes, they are all been deported. This is where the book of Daniel comes from. Daniel is one of those leaders that have been deported to Babylon, and we see that story in the Bible. Only the poorest of the poor are left. I just need to pause so we get this. They hauled the the foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar, had hauled out the treasures of God's temple. The gold, the silver, the candlestick, the curtains, the beautiful riches that surrounded the walls, the gold-plated doors in the temple, gone. This was their glory. This was their entire lives. The temple, the city, their national sovereignty, this was everything to them. Completely raped, pillaged, and destroyed. See, the the kingdom, the King Nebuchadnezzar had been looking anxiously, waiting the right time to go and steal the treasures that he knew was in Jerusalem. And this was the right time. He finally got to pillage the things that he, was always, he had been looking for for years to get the treasures out and to use them at his own capital back in Babylon. What is this like on a national level? On a national level for Israel, this is like 9-11. Remember how vulnerable, how violated we felt. At least for a couple years. Uh, on a spiritual level, I was trying to think, what, what is this comparable to in this day? Just maybe think about the Catholic faith. Maybe some of you here 
practice the Catholic faith and grew up Catholic and that's a big identity thing for you. Imagine the Vatican burned, gone. Pope assassinated. That's us. This is what that is for them. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, then tells us why. Verse 19. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see. Because see, they didn't know and they weren't seeing that it is evil and bitter to forsake the Lord your God. And here's the reason why all this happened, why they went away, because the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You're like a restless young camel running here and there. Yet, in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely, his anger has turned from me. But behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. What is God doing? God, through the Babylonians, is giving them the consequences of their sin. He's judging them, and it's bad. But now, before, it's very important to realize as we work through this that God had been sending messengers, though, through the last couple hundred years. He had been sending prophets and you OT scholars. This is where Hosea comes from and Joel and Micah and Nahum and Zephaniah. All these books come from this period where he is appealing to his people. Zephaniah says something like, God made you to be his people and to walk in his ways, but you have forgotten him and walked in the ways of all the other nations and judgment is coming. But if you humble and confess and return, if you humble yourself, confess and return, he will forgive. So note too that Israel has not just sinned against God's laws, his statutes. He's also sinned against God's goodness and refused his mercy. See, it's, it's one thing to reject God's law. It's a whole other thing to reject his goodness and his grace. So they were deceived. They were not willing to return. They loved broken cisterns. And Jeremiah's portrait for us is that it's just insane. Forsaking a river for a cistern that can hold no water. They had for some reason in these moments, in these years, thought whatever Baal was giving them, whatever they were experiencing, whatever pleasure they were experiencing from the worship of these false gods was better than anything God had ever given them and would give them. When you take a stand back, you're just, this is insanity. But Ezekiel says that God says this, I am bringing judgment upon you, but I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. So return and live. What, what's happening here? Do you think God's angry? you think God's angry for how he's been treated by his people? Yeah. But he's also grieved. This is, God is not just some disinterested judge that is meeting out punishment. He is, he is judge, but he's also like a bride. Or no, he's like a husband to a bride. He is like also like a loving father that disciplines his children. Think about it, dads. How, how, how can anger and love dwell together? Right? My children tell me all the time, Dad, you don't love me because I'm giving them some consequences. And you know what's in my heart. <laughs> Guess what? I'm angry with you and I love you. And that's where these consequences are coming from. Right? It's, you can easily see how anger and love dwell in the same heart. Now, think about your own life. What have you suffered? What have you suffered? And I ask this question shuddering because I know that I know many of you. I know your stories. 
I know that most of you have suffered more than me so far. Um, loved ones, gone. Jobs, gone. Money, gone. House, gone. Spouse, maybe gone. Kids, gone. Plans, gone. Maybe if you've been hearing this story so far this morning, you're like, I feel like Israel. And if you're human, which most of you look human, you've asked, why? Maybe even accused God, why? You've asked the question. You haven't just moved on. You've been asking, why is this happening to me? Why has this happened? Why has God let this happen? Well, if you've been humbled this morning as we have been talking, um, maybe you've asked, is the pain that I've experienced in my life, maybe the pain I'm going through right now, is this because of my sin? Or maybe you've been looking at me going, Chris, are you going to say that what I've suffered and what I've experienced are the result of me sinning against God? Is this God's judgment for my sin? And here's what I would say. I don't know. I don't know. Our suffering can come from one of many places. One, we could, this is just a fallen world and things are not right. Think innocent people suffer. Innocent children suffer for no doing a reason of their own. This place is just jacked up. Sin, maybe the sinful actions of others. Maybe, maybe people that you loved have sinned against you and you are hurt and you have hurt. Evil has a personal side as well. Satan actually has an agenda to bring suffering and pain to people. Maybe you are suffering, in a, perhaps in a relationship, the consequences of your sin against them. Maybe you are suffering some of the things that you have sown in relationships or maybe in your job or maybe in other places. Or maybe you are suffering the consequences of your sin against God. I know one thing else is that no matter what the source of your suffering, of your story, I know God's involved. Listen to the writer of Hebrews quoting the Proverbs. He says in verse, chapter 10, verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. There it is. For the Lord disciplines. He disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens every son he receives. It is for discipline that you endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now for the moment, verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. What are we learning about suffering here? Suffering, no matter what source it comes from, is God's loving discipline in our life. Now, think about it both ways, though. You see this last phrase in this verse? It says that discipline trains us. Some of the things that we suffer are God's formative discipline in our life. Formative discipline. He's training us. He's training our hearts to long for Him. He's training our hearts to not be trapped by the pleasures and the goodness of the things of this world. He's training us in those things. This is when bad things happen to us because simply this is a fallen world. He is training our hearts. As awful as it seems, God is using those things. He's involved in those things to train our hearts to hope and long for Him. And then there's corrective discipline. God is letting us experience the consequences of our sin. 
And he says he chastises us the way a loving father would. Does this seem harsh? We have to involve God in our suffering. Because if we don't, we will either be left with two bad options. One of two bad options. One is a God that cares about us but does not have the power to stop evil. Or we'll be left with a powerful God that doesn't care about us. And if that's the case, then we will be left without a father and we are illegitimate sons. But the good news this morning is that God is our father and he is powerful enough to stop evil, though he sometimes doesn't. And this God cares for us. There's purpose in our suffering. There's purpose in it. That is the good news. And one of the scariest things is the other side of it. One of the scariest things we can read in Scripture is that God gives people over to their sin and does nothing about it. They rebel against him. They go on without him. They leave him. And their life is happy and wonderful and pleasant. And they don't know a thing about their hearts. They have no idea they have left and forsaken the fountain of living waters. That is scarier than being under the hand of God. So back to Israel. Why did God devastate them? Was he really judging them for their, only for their disobedience? Only for their bell worship, their idolatry? Yes, but he goes one step further. Why did God act now in such a devastating, seemingly final way? Look at verse 35. Behold, I will bring you to judgment. Why? For saying, I have not sinned. See, God had given them his law. They knew what his statutes were. But even in the process, we looked at this in Leviticus, and when God, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, that within that same very discourse, God is also making a provision for the forgiveness of sins. Remember the whole thing about the sacrifices and, and the Levitical priesthood that, that we studied? See, all of that was making provision for when God broke his, or for when the, God's people broke his law. So God is not acting right now decisively because they have simply broken his law, because God had made provision for that. He had made sacrifices for that. He was willing to forgive them for that. The reason why judgment has come is because they have said they have no sin. Sin here is not the problem. It's the ignoring of the sin, and it's not being humbled for their sin. I hope that makes sense. So the most crazy thing in this is that he wants their repentance, not their perfection. He wants their hearts back. He wants them to draw close. And that's the craziest thing about this. You have to read it to believe it. That In the aftermath of Jerusalem being destroyed and most of them having been relocated, he says this, in the middle of that awfulness, he says, fear not, nor be dismayed, for one day I will bring you back to your land and your great-grandchildren will live in peace and safety. I mean, you have to read it to believe it. Chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end, a full end of all the nations among whom I have scattered you, but I will not, but of you, I will not make a full end. Are you kidding me? The ones that should have known God the most, the ones that had the law, the ones that were married to God, He says, I will not make a full end of you. Though I will make a full end of everyone else for doing the same things that you did. I will discipline you in just measure and I will by no means leave you unpunished. What does Israel really deserve? What does Israel really deserve? Remember the divorce proceedings we were talking about at the beginning? They deserve to be divorced and cut off forever, never to return again. That's, that would have been justice. But we see here that God, that God does not give Israel justice. And that's the whole point of the story. 
Israel does not get justice. They get mercy. They do not get what they deserve. They get discipline. They deserve being made a full end of. But God says over and over that he will not make a full end of them. How is this possible? We have to figure this out, folks. How is this possible that God would not let justice be done? Because this, 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 this accuses God. Is he getting soft? Is he no longer just? If a judge did that in downtown Richmond, we would fire him for not meeting out justice. How can God still be just and not give his people justice? What does Israel deserve? They deserve to be destroyed and divorced forever. But you know what else they deserve? This is what we deserve. What do we deserve for disobedience against a holy and eternal God? We deserve, justly, a holy and eternal punishment. Now I know that many here don't believe in hell. Some may not believe in hell. And those of you that do, you may get it intellectually, you may read it in your Bibles, but you shudder. You still can't get your heart around it. But here's the thing. I know for many of us, believers or not, it does seem so primitive. It seems so repulsive. But even if you don't believe in hell this morning, I know something you do believe in. You do believe in justice. You do believe in justice. Whether it is someone that has committed bold-faced murder and gets off and gets free because they can pay enough lawyers to lie for them, or whether it's you getting cut off in traffic tomorrow morning. You want justice. Typically, you want justice for other people and mercy for yourself, but you believe in justice. So put yourself for a moment in God's place. He deserves justice the same way you want justice. So what does, but here's what God says to Israel. Chapter 31, this famous passage, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. But here's the thing. For God to be God, no one can be allowed to get away with anything. So how does God justify saying that I will forgive you and I will forget your sins? How does he forgive and still stay just? Chapter 31, verse 14 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Is Jeremiah talking about some future king that's to come? Well, we know, looking back at the history of Israel, that not even close. (laughs) The kings continue to go from bad to worse. None of them fulfill the Lord is our righteousness. So who is this future ruler? Who is this future king that Jeremiah is talking about? It's Jesus himself. God will get righteousness, but it will not, doesn't have to be ours. He will mete out the punishment that our sins deserve, but it does not have to be upon us. And if you're wondering this morning, why does the cross matter to so many people? Why is it the center of the Christian faith? It is this right here, because this is the only way. Jesus dying on the cross is the only way for God to be both just and forgiving. So as you've listened to me this morning, as you've heard all of this, is your heart, are you seeing your heart? Do you feel the adultery? Do you feel the pain? Do you feel the scandal that's gone on between you and God? Don't resist that voice. 
agree that you have been an unfaithful wife, that you have done what is scandalous and preposterous and left the rivers of living water for a broken cistern? Have you sought after that which is worthless and become worthless? Do you feel that? Have you sensed that? If so, know this, that we can either be humbled by God's word this morning and return to him in those areas or we face possible future discipline. Now, not justice. If you belong to the Lord today, not justice. Jesus received justice in our place. But we have the choice whether to be humbled by his word or by his discipline this morning. So what will you choose and how will you choose? See that Jesus came to be our righteousness, that Jesus lived a perfect life and from God's perspective, he lived our perfect life. At every point that we go looking for identity and meaning in money, power, pleasure, name it, He didn't. He trusted God every single time that you haven't, he did. Jesus can be your righteousness. And because Jesus received punishment in his body, in his very being on the cross, he suffered the hell that you and I deserve. If we will trust him this morning, our hearts can be turned. If we will humble ourselves this morning, we can return to him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we settle in these things this morning, we ask that you would search our hearts. Like David prayed, I just think about all the things that David suffered as a result of his own sin and God, one of the greatest things that we get from that are the Psalms that he wrote about his heart. He said, Lord, search us and know us. Know our heart and know our anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me. Father, as we, as we take communion this morning, may, may it not just be an act, but may it be faith. May we see in the broken bread and the crushed grapes Jesus taking our punishment in our place. May we see that that is what turns our suffering from justice into your loving discipline. God, let us receive all this by faith and respond to you humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.